te kiro wai, he kōrero pūrākau mō tētahi hoiho, he kōrero pūrākau tūturu tēnei. This is a book that you've published recently, and it's a story about a horse? It's about a foal that was born and dropped in the floodwaters. Near your house in Rangitukia? It's out the window from my bedroom. And this, this happened on the day of your birthday? Well, by the time I got up, the foal was sitting in the floodwaters because the, the mare was having difficulty expelling the afterbirth, but I didn't realise that. I just wondered why she was standing stupidly, gazing at her baby in the waters instead of doing something about it. And then I realised something had gone horribly wrong. So there I was out, out in the drizzle, in my nightie and my dressing gown and slippers, <laughs> standing there wondering what to do, which is how the story starts. And then the your niece? And then I was standing there panicking and wondering what to do. You wouldn't know I grew up on a farm. <laughs> and my niece arrived. And she had come because she knew it was July the 1st, my birthday. I turned 62. And she came to say happy birthday, although she was very busy, as everyone else in the valley was because of massive flooding. But she had a, had a daughter born on the same day, on July the 1st, and she remembered... That's Roy Mata. That it was Roy Mata's birthday and Auntie Kelly's birthday. So she came to bring me a daffodil. And daffodils bloom early here up the coast in July. I mean, it's unheard of anywhere else because they're springtime flowers. And she brought me the first yellow flower for my birthday. And she was on her way to her school. She was then principal of the area school in Tararua. And her caretaker had rung to tell her that the school really should be closed, but it was a decision for her as principal to make. And would she please come in? So on the way there, she diverted to say happy birthday to me and, of course, ended up having to help. And what she did was she just leapt the fence because she's quite tall and rushed through the floodwaters to see if she could shift this poor little foal who was sitting in the call, the, what the old people call a kahu. And, of course, she couldn't move it because she said it was like trying to shift a little boulder. And by then, I started to panic. And then I could hear hammering at the school next door on the opposite side of my house and realized my cousin Parikura Ka was there helping out the school by clearing block drains and things. You know, everybody in the valley was helping with little flood results everywhere. So I went to the fence and called out to him. And when he realized it was a horse in trouble, because we were all brought up with horses, he came rushing over in his truck. And... We were lucky we got him because he needed someone with great strength. And he rushed into the floodwaters and just picked the 
fowl up and hoisted it onto dry ground, but it was still sitting in its core. And that was, you know, the beginning of the trouble. Because the fowl had to get out of the, that casing to be able to stand up to get a drink from its mother. And that's what caused us to worry, because April and Parakura were standing there by the horse. I couldn't go into the paddock because of the flooding. So I'm standing on this side of the fence yelling at them, you know, saying, why can't you do something? And they said, we've tried to shift things along, but the mother was having trouble, so she couldn't help. The, the mayor couldn't help. And while they were standing there wondering what to do, this pig who used to live with the horses, you know, animals go and park where they like, and you can't shift them if they choose to be with animals not of their kind. And the pig came galloping along, snorting and screeching, you know, the noise they make. And he started to push the foal with his snout. And I thought, because I didn't understand the relationship, I thought that he was trying to bite the pig, the foal. But he was, in fact, the one who knew what to do and how to remove the call. So I was shouting at my cousin and my niece and saying, you know, why don't you do something? All you're doing is standing there. I was being most unhelpful, but I was in a panic. And they said, you wouldn't believe what's happening. Because I thought that the pig was was on the attack, and the pig was actually assisting in the way animals know what to do. And people don't. So as the adults are falling apart, the the pig came to the rescue? The pig was one doing doing the bashing of the skin. <laughs> You know, karomi romi, kapaki paki. Which was helping the the foal to ease out yeah. of its of that casing, which then enabled it to stand up. Yeah. And then go to its mother. And it took ages. Well, the problem was it couldn't go to its mother to get a drink straight away because she was having trouble expelling her afterbirth. So it got very complicated. But the hilarious bit was the pig would do some kneading and some massaging, you know, mahi romi romi and all that stuff. And when he, when the pig got tired, he would go and have a lie down. <laughs> now, I'd never seen anything like that before. <laughs> and I said, why is the pig lying down? They said, he's a bit puffed out. Then he'd he stand up and go go and have another go at the thing, at the skin, at trying to remove it. And it all took hours. And eventually, uh, everything happened. The, they managed. Well, the pig and the foal between them managed to. They got the core split. And 
on the ground, and then the fall took ages to stand up, you know, because it had to have the blood flowing through its legs. And the mother, in the meantime, eventually managed to expel her afterbirth. And then when she was all feeling all better, she was able to present herself so that she could give her her baby a drink. And then I'm standing at the fence. By then, the helpers have gone. The two helpers had gone to their jobs to deal with their floods. And the screeching sound was happening at one corner of the paddock, and these two big birds arrived, uh, black-backed seagulls. And they they have a special job in our history. And they came, because they're the scavengers, they eat rubbish in the paddocks. And they cleaned up the afterbirth. And I put them in the book because as part of our history, uh, gulls are in our in our stories. And they were used. Well, their job was to clean up the two papakus. Mm. And then the bones were taken away and washed by people who special task it was and painted with cocoa and then they were wrapped and put in special casings and taken away up into the into the bush and to put into caves and the only reason I know that bit is that my father as a little boy of about eight my dad was born in 1903 he clearly remembered going on a journey with the old people and the tohunga to take uh, the Tupapaku up into the hills, up into the burials, special burial places. And you know, as children, we used to we found out about these caves, and we used to hunt around for them. We were so naughty. When I think about it, we thought we were being very smart. And then we got punished by the old people for going and interfering with couple things. But that was our, us and our childhood. And that's why the gulls feature in the story. Because our cemetery, which is right opposite our house, is called O Karoro, of the, of the gulls. And the Karoro are the ones with the black backs. So there are a whole lot of cultural issues in the story that everything just happened. And that's the miraculous part of the story. And when my brother rang to say, happy birthday, did anything exciting happen on your birthday? I told him about all the morning's events. And he's actually a storyteller and writer as well. So he listened for a whole hour while I ear-bashed him about what had happened. And when I finished, Wee Cookie said to me, you must write a story. I said, who for? He said, for the children, for the mokopuna, because it's quite a 
significant event. And then he said, and he thought it was time he hung up his telephone because the call was costing him. And it had taken one hour to explain what had happened to for him to sort of get the picture. So how long did it take for you to actually craft the story? Not very long, but it was the long time is finding money, finding a team of people, uh, finding legal help for so that you are very clear about copyright, about who does what when, and deciding whether it could be illustrated. And by chance, one of the committee said she knew of a couple who worked on projects like this. And I said, what did they charge? And she didn't know. And I said, well, people like this should be paid for doing illustrations and all that sort of the decorative arts of the book making. And that's how I discovered Tania Short and her husband, Martin. And they have a company called Tania and Martin. And they, he was very excited by the idea. But it was difficult because we had no money. And we were so naive. We went off ahead and got ourselves ready for publication. And we'd do a bit here and a bit there. And we applied to little trusts for money. Some people were very helpful. And others kept asking where the English version was. So I sort of sent around a little translation and all these people started telling me how to write it. And I said, excuse me, it's my story. I'll tell it my way. And that's why I went back and stuck with the Māori version first because that just flowed, everything flowed, as did the artwork with the book. It's not like a um a standard standardized picture book version, is it? Or children's book, is it? No. And somebody asked me in an interview who the book was for, what age group, and I said six to sixty or six to eighty, whichever. It you know, it's got wide appeal. Um and niece April was very interesting when she first saw the draft and the the drawings and things. And she said, this isn't a children's book, this is an artwork. And that wasn't what it was meant to be, but it, that's how it happened. Because as long as, as Martin um, was working on it, he started to get more and more ideas for the book. And one of his charming ideas, which I didn't think was charming at the time because he asked me to do the drawings, (laughs) was of the map. And I said, why am I writing a story about where I live? He said, so people get an idea of the place you come from. 
and what that's what makes the story. It's also multimedia. There's photographs as well as drawings and um, text within it. Mm. Was that purposeful? Those were, those were all the design teams. They're a husband and wife team, and they've got a little company. Um, and Tanya was the project manager. She's the Ngati Pro woman, uh, which is how I met her through local, the local Kazi network. He, I think, had worked in design and advertising and all kinds of art fields. So he had all these ideas that had never been done for a children's book. That people loved the drawing. They loved the artwork and the photographs. And what about kids? What have been their responses? Same thing. And someone said that she couldn't understand the book. But her mokopuna explained it to her, explained the story by following the pictures. And she ara ko takoto te poni poni. Ko tamai te poak. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> and she said, little kids who don't have the leo can explain it. Adults who don't have the leo, leo can understand it. Because you've tracked your way through the pictures. You can get a fair idea of what's happening. 